Hi, welcome back. This is Teach English in China podcast. I'm your host Ming. In the last episode, I shared with you a few cases that were close to me and asked yourself to think about whether or not you could be a good candidate to relocate to China teaching English as well. Now, since you've come to this episode, I'm assuming that your answer is yes. So, congratulations. But then you must have so many questions following that. What's China's economy like? What kind of living standards could I expect? What's the culture like? And what conventions I need to observe? What about the languages, climates, and so on? So, in the following few episodes, I'll be addressing these questions and concerns of yours. First thing I'd like to stress is that China is a huge country, and all factors in the country's economics can vary vastly from one area to another. So I need to make it clear from the get-go that many of the statements that I'll be making in these episodes are generalizations, because it would be nearly impossible to cover everything in equal amount of details, right? So what I'll try to do here is to give you some basic understanding of things about mainstream Chinese cities, where most of the jobs you be get from. So you can get started on your initial research. Meanwhile, I'll do my best to give you specific examples when I reference any specific locations. Okay, let's begin with economic development, which is probably the main concern to most of you. Since it is an indicator of what kinds of salaries you will get, what kind of places you'll be living in, and what foods would be available to you, etc. China, as I mentioned in the first episode, is no longer a country with many people working in the field. Rice field, that is. Rural population is, of course, still quite large. But urbanization has been going on at a rapid speed. As you may know, the country experienced incredible economic growth in the past couple of decades. Nowadays, you could walk in any first-tier or second-tier city and think that that's not so different from a place like Hong Kong in terms of what you see on the street. China is the second largest economy in the world now. Now meaning 2018, and some people project that it will be number one in a few years. Recent years, one major fuel to the economic growth has been e-commerce, as it is the case in many other countries like the U.S. This makes it. Super convenient for you to buy products from everywhere, including your home country, wherever that might be. Mobile payments have become so prevalent that it may be leading the world in technological innovation right now. There's one recent joke that goes: In China, even pen handlers use mobile phones to receive digital money from、uh, other people. So it just means it shows that information technology has、uh, been really prevalent, and 
it really has helped China to catch up at a much higher speed than most other countries that went through a much slower industrial revolution. Again, I'm not here to make a judgment as to whether or not it's a good thing. I'll leave that to you to decide. does this rapid economic development mean? It means that the living standards are much higher for many people, and many everyday Chinese citizens are enjoying a much higher purchasing power. For a lot of people like myself, we've seen our living standards leaping in large proportions in the past couple of decades. We could argue that people in some Chinese cities enjoy higher living standards and convenience than many cities in some developed countries. It took China to develop its economy in about a quarter or a fifth of the time as that of many other countries like the UK, for instance. For me, when I was growing up in the early 80s, my family lived uh, in a small house and uh, in a small city's outskirt. We had no running water, no indoor toilet, no TV or any other household appliance, of course. And there were very few food selections. And meat was only available on special occasions. We, as children, would receive one set of new clothes only during Chinese New Year. And it was like that for most people in, uh, in an average uh, city in China at that time. Then, in the late 80s, uh, the then chairman Deng, Deng Xiaoping decided to have the open-door economic policy and the country started to bring in uh, foreign investments, and factories began to multiply. I believe nobody you know has never seen a product that labeled Made in China, right? And this was why. So fast forward to today, manufacturing industry has actually started to move out of China, and to other newly developing countries like Vietnam and Cambodia, etc. And this is because as China became much richer, labor cost has gone up a lot. And therefore, um, to continue using Chinese factories uh, would make the cost much higher. So, uh, therefore, uh, companies, a lot of companies in the U.S. and other developed countries, they uh, move the production out of China. Of course, uh, another reason is that um, China wants to reduce pollution that was caused by the manufacturing industry partially. So now almost everyone that lives in cities has running water, indoor toilets, and other basic necessities. Most people live in multi-level apartment buildings, and some rich people live in detached houses. Many households uh, have cars, which was very rare when I was growing up. 
So, what's it like for foreign teachers here? Most schools、uh, and organizations can offer shared or non-shared apartments, which could vary in sizes. Obviously, in large and expensive megacities like Beijing and Shanghai, where space is premium, your apartment would be much smaller.、Uh, and、uh, in smaller and less developed cities, you would be able to enjoy much、uh, spacious apartments. By small, I mean studio-like ones, which are usually around 50 square meters, which is about 500 square feet. And by big, I mean one or two-bedroom apartments, which are around 100 square meters. And usually, apartments that are used for foreign teachers are fully furnished, so you wouldn't need to bring or buy anything for yourself. Concerns of most of you, I'd imagine, is compensation. Again, this can vary a great deal. It depends on a few factors: the type of school, workload, which is very important,、uh, location, and your professional qualifications. Usually, offers for foreign teachers include a monthly salary, free housing, one-way or return、uh, flight ticket. And some type of medical insurance. Generally, the annual total compensation could be anywhere from a hundred thousand RMB or roughly fifteen thousand US dollars to two hundred thousand RMB.、Uh, just repeat that: from a hundred thousand RMB to two hundred thousand RMB. Now let's talk about the variables. That cause this much difference. First, the type of school. There are broadly speaking three types: public, from primary to university; private, again from private to university; and private companies, which are usually referred to as English training centers. Here, there is one more type that I like to mention.、Uh, Right now, which is uh, private, uh, that so-called international schools, and this type is of much smaller number, and therefore is not the main focus in this podcast. But just to quickly give you a brief description, in case you your qualifications may fit、uh, in this category, these schools are for well-to-do expats children in China and Chinese. Kids from very wealthy families. They are typically in first and second tier cities, or some smaller cities with some special industry that engage a good number of expats. The tuition fees are usually higher,、uh, much higher than w- what most Chinese families can afford. They usually offer international courses like IB,、uh, meaning、uh, International Baccalaureate, if that's something you're not familiar with. And foreign teachers are supposed to have teaching credentials from their home country. Pay for these、uh, 
teachers uh, by these schools are higher, obviously. And so this would be good for professional teachers from Western countries who want to experience or live in China, whatever the reasons they may have for that. Now, let's return to the jobs that are available at many locations to many of you. The three types that I just uh, mentioned. First, public schools. As you may have guessed, these schools are government-funded and generally require fewer teaching hours per week, usually between 16 to 20 45-minute sessions during weekdays. And some schools may require you to do some occasional evening and weekend activities. Most schools have four to six weeks off during the summer and winter breaks, and usually these off weeks are paid, but you must double-check with the employer to confirm that this is indeed the case. So, as you can see, uh, workload is generally lighter in public schools, and therefore pay is lower accordingly. Second type, private schools. And this type is fewer than their public counterparts, although I believe that they're on the rise in bigger cities uh, nowadays. So since they're privately funded, budget is of course a major concern to the employer. So usually uh, these schools seek to maximize foreign teachers' potentials and require more teaching hours per week but higher salaries as well. So even though your compensation overall in private schools uh, would be lower, than that from public ones. There is one other factor that you could consider as a plus with private schools, and that is since the management systems and financial arrangements are more flexible, you are more likely to be able to bargain for a better compensation package for any contract renewals if the school deem that uh, you have done a good job in the previous contractual period. And for those who would like to take on some managerial roles in the school's English teaching team, for instance, you would have a better chance to do so in private schools also. In public schools, most employees are under this so-called permanent tenure scheme, and foreign teachers are considered temporary employees who cannot be included in this permanent system. Therefore, room for more salary or lateral career movement are generally not possible in many public schools. And there are, of course, some exceptions in some cities, but not in most at the moment. The third type, private companies that offer non-curricular English programs. If you remember, these are typically called training centers in China. And they offer a variety of language courses to students of all ages, um, basically. Courses they offer could be for K-12 through students to supplement or pre-study or preview 
what, whatever you may call it, their school's English program. Exam prep courses like IELTS, TOEFL, etc. Some also offer working adults English courses for general purposes or for business purposes. Similar to the previous type of uh, private schools, these private companies or training centers are very budget conscious, as you can imagine, and therefore you would expect heavier workload, between 30 to 40 teaching hours per week. These companies can be owned or um, operated by Chinese or by multinational companies such as English First, Disney English, etc. By the way, you can see how big the market is because the companies like Disney is also trying to get a slice of the cake. Some foreign teachers that have worked at this type of organization feel that the workload could be overwhelming and therefore turnover rate is generally higher. Although I do know some expats here who feel that these companies offer them a good career platform. So I suppose it depends on what type of person you are. Anyway, regardless of uh, which type of school you would be working for, if you're able to get a full-time working load, meaning 20 to 30 teaching hours plus lesson prep in a week, you would be able to earn enough money to maintain a above-average lifestyle in most Chinese cities. To give you a better idea what I mean, uh, let's say that you work in a training center in a second-tier city like Qingdao, for instance. Um, your monthly salary could be between 12,000 uh, to 15,000 RMB, plus housing, uh, free housing or housing allowance, flight reimbursement, and medical care, as I mentioned previously. So since your housing expenses are covered, if you are not living a lavish lifestyle, it's conceivable that you could save half or at least a third of your monthly salary. If you cook your own meals or eat most of your meals at the school or company cafeteria, it can become even more affordable. But if you are someone who needs to eat some comfort food from the home country now and then, it's possible too. Nowadays, with the booming of the international e-commerce, many products from all around the world can be bought here also. Like for me, I bought a lot of stuff from uh, companies' online stores uh, in China, such as Costco of the US, Sinsbury of the UK, and many others from South Korea, Japan, and you name it. Now, US giant uh, retail giant Amazon is pushing its presence in China very aggressively as well. So whenever I crave some type of food from other countries that I've been to, I can just go online and put an order through, and then it'll arrive at my doorstep in just a few days. 
Again, sometimes I feel bad about the uh, pollution that this causes, but you know what I mean. At this point, maybe some of you want to ask, so what about the average salary in a city like Qingdao? Well, my answer is that it doesn't really matter what the number is because average is not a good point of reference as income stratification is very, very high in China. Some people earn billions of uh, RMB and some only hundreds. So the average can be quite meaningless. What I like to look at is the mode income, meaning the number that occurred the most frequently. I think that's a much better indicator, but unfortunately this sort of data is very hard to get. But for you, uh, what you could expect is that you'll get paid more than most Chinese staff in the same school as you. And you can just look at how much money you would be able to save at the end of the year. And that's what really matters, right? So, as you can see, teaching English in China really can be a good option for many people that do not have better or viable career options in, in their home country. While we're on this topic, I'd like to bring up one thing that you should be aware of, which is most Chinese schools prefer native English speakers from the UK, US, and Canada. Australians and New Zealanders and Irish are probably the second option as they perceive the accents being a little bit difficult for Chinese students to follow. Also, I think it'd be irresponsible for me not to mention that Caucasian applicants are preferred also, which I am not making any judgment here, and I believe that it, it is becoming less and less apparent as many people began to realize that professional qualifications and personal capabilities in teaching are more important things that make a good teacher. So if you're not a Caucasian, I would suggest that you really make sure that you present a competent and professional CV and be extra professional during the interview. And how you speak and carry yourself will come through despite any preconceived biases on the employer's part. So, this concludes the episode, and I'd uh, like to leave you with one question. Based on what I've described in this episode about Chinese uh, economy, do you still think that you would consider moving to China. Why or why not? You can leave your answer on my anchor.fm page and we'll be looking at Chinese cultures and conventions in the next two episodes.